This is Bradbury 100, celebrating the centenary year of American writer Ray Bradbury. I'm Phil Nichols of bradburymedia.co.uk. Each week on the podcast, we look at some aspect of Bradbury's life and work and interview someone who is inspired by Ray. Welcome once again to Bradbury 100. In today's show, I'll be speaking to a composer and musician who is inspired by Ray Bradbury, and that's John Massari, the film composer whose credits include the theme tune to Ray Bradbury Theatre. Ray Bradbury Theatre was Ray Bradbury's personal Twilight Zone, uh, a TV series that ran in the 1980s and 90s with weekly episodes that would variously feature science fiction, fantasy and horror stories. All of them originally written by Ray Bradbury and all of them scripted for TV by Ray Bradbury. The series started out on HBO in the early days of cable TV. Now HBO was originally known for pay-per-view sporting events but then they began to specialise in film screenings, and by the mid-80s they were beginning to toy with commissioning TV series of their own. And Ray Bradbury Theatre was one of the first commissions, although it didn't last. After two batches of episodes, HBO let it go, and it found a new home instead on the USA network. But how did Ray Bradbury come to have a TV series? Well, it was something that he'd been open to for many years, And according to a story he told in several interviews, he had often been asked by TV networks to do a show like The Twilight Zone. But he was never able to trust the TV executives. And at one particular meeting, he was just about to sign a contract for a series when one of the execs opened his mouth and said, We don't want anything highfalutin from you, Ray. And this caused Ray to hesitate. And then he rounded on the exec, telling him how he had risen up through the pulp magazines, and his heroes were Buck Rogers and Edgar Rice Burroughs and Al Frank Baum. Nothing highfalutin there. Needless to say, the contract didn't get signed that day, and Bradbury walked. But at some point, though, Bradbury teamed up with a producer he could trust, and that was Larry Wilcox. Now, Wilcox at the time, and probably still today, was best known as a TV star. He was the star of Chips. He was the blonde one. But he was also a producer, and Bradbury found that he trusted Wilcox's story judgment. And having seen quite a few of the memos which went back and forth between them, I think Bradbury was absolutely right to hold this opinion. Wilcox was really very good at looking at a script and spotting weaknesses and pointing out areas for improvement. For all that you might think that a writer of Bradbury's status may not want or need feedback, all the evidence from Ray Bradbury Theatre, all the script memos, all the script drafts, all point to Bradbury very much wanting feedback and needing feedback. He believed strongly that he knew how to tell a story, and he knew how to tell a film story, but he also knew that he could write scenes that were impractical or even implausible. So Larry Wilcox was his barometer, someone whose judgment he trusted. So with Larry Wilcox's guidance, 
Bradbury's scripts for what was originally called The Bradbury Chronicles were honed, and the idea was pitched to HBO and to the small Canadian production company called Atlantis. A deal was struck, and in 1986 the first three episodes were filmed. A defining characteristic of the Ray Bradbury Theatre was the array of guest stars. Each Bradbury story would be brought to life with at least one familiar face every week, usually someone well-known from TV. The familiar faces in the early days included James Coco, William Shatner, Jeff Goldblum, and a young Drew Barrymore, and even Peter O'Toole, a big-name movie star who usually just didn't do television. After moving on from HBO, Ray Bradbury Theatre went into a phase of quite variable production quality. The budgets were smaller, and the show relied on international co-production deals for funding. And this in turn meant the show literally travelled around the world, with episodes being made in France, the UK, New Zealand and Canada. And all through the seven years that the Ray Bradbury Theatre was in production, Bradbury wrote all the scripts himself. And he was an executive producer, which gave him some level of control of what went on. He came to depend on British producer Tom Cotter as his go-between, Cotter would travel with the show, managing the production on the ground in all the different countries where they shot, and he would stay in contact with Bradbury almost on a daily basis, mostly by fax, if you remember those, and occasionally by phone. Bradbury would fax him the script drafts, Cotter would then edit the scripts to fit local circumstances and would fax them back to Bradbury and so on. This was all in the days before email. By the seventh year, the last year of the series, it had become quite good. The shaky production values of some of the early French and New Zealand episodes gradually went away. Over the full run of the show, there were some, frankly, awful episodes, including some that even Ray himself called clunkers. But there were also some very good ones, especially in the last year or so of the show. And all through that seven-year run, the show used the same theme music, written and recorded by John Massari. But the version of the music they used was only ever intended as a demo. Ah, but I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's meet today's guest, who can tell us all about the origins of the Ray Bradbury Theatre music. John Massari wrote the theme music, and he was also award-nominated for the score of one of the episodes, Banshee. Joining me today on Bradbury 100 is John Massari. John is a composer and music supervisor with a long list of Hollywood film and TV credits to his name, of which I mentioned just three, the classic Killer Clowns from Outer Space, the long-running Prison Break, and most significantly here, the Ray Bradbury Theatre. John, welcome to Bradbury 100. Thank you, Phil. Thank you for having me on your podcast. You're very welcome. Uh, John, anyone who's seen Ray Bradbury Theatre knows that theme music that you wrote, but I think that version of the music was only meant to be a demo. Is that right? Oh, you had to bring up that painful memory. Uh, <laughs> well, it was my understanding the producers... 
it was a team of producers. Part of the team was in Canada and part of the team was here in Hollywood. That was the team. The team in Hollywood is the team that Ray Bradbury was working with. The story of me getting the job has a long history, but I, I will just get to the your, your question about the demo. I told them that, uh, you know, I can do a, a, what we used to call a, we didn't call it a mock-up back then. We called it a, um, a facsimile of what it could be when it's finished. And they heard that, what I did. I did uh, with a, a, a few synthesizers and a, just a, a, a couple of musicians. And they said, sounds wonderful. Absolutely great. And we were ready to move on to the next stage. She says, no, this is it. This is, we're going to use this. We're going to cut the visuals to your... They had never given me a precise... It was in the early days of HBO. They didn't have all the standards put together. So I think the opening title is not a clear-cut 60 seconds. It may be a little bit more than that or a little bit less. You know, I, I just wrote the music. I just wanted to hear the theme. They said they would just love that. And I was just pulling my hairs out. It could be so much better. They said, no, it's absolutely fine. And to this day, it happens. I'll, I'll deliver a um, what we call now a mock-up. And the sample libraries and the in the programming is so spot on accurate that most people think, Oh, that's a real orchestra, you know? And they say, why, why, why do I have to pay tens of thousands of dollars, you know, to record this 60 second piece when it sounds perfect this way. And then there are purists that they want the experience of being in the recording studio, seeing the musicians and the camaraderie and all that, uh, that does happen still. But back then, it was uh, very disheartening for me, especially this was a rather high-profile project working with a very, very world-renowned author who was going to have his work manifest in, uh, in a broadcast series. I, I know before he had had Twilight Zone and various radio shows, which I used to listen to as a kid. And to me, this was... I felt like I was flying in the stars to have just to have the polish taken off that experience by having my synthesizer demo <laughs> be the representation of my vision. It's, it's was quite, um, you know, you just have to suck it up. You know, I, I grew up with very resilient and rugged people in my life. My, my grandparents specifically who had gone through great adversity and got through it. You know, if they did that, I, I can do this. I can, I can get by. I'll just have to suck it up. Can you remember who the main contact was for you, who, who the producer was? Well, the producer just happened to have the same last name as me. I, years before, I think I was still in high school. My mom used to watch the news, the local network news here in Los Angeles, and she says, you know, there's a producer at the end that has the same na last name as us. When you grow up and move to Hollywood, you should look him up, which is exactly what I did. We had lunch a few times, and uh, turns out his name is Mark Massari. Mark Massari is also a musician. He, he plays uh, jazz piano, uh, among other things. At one point, he says, you know, I'm working on a ghost story, a series of ghost stories. Does that sound like something that would interest you? I go, oh, yeah, I like, you know, sci-fi and horror and all that. Yeah, I, I really like it. And now you have to understand, by this time, I had already written a body of music, and he'd heard some of it, and apparently 
you know, it, it resonated with him. And he says, well, okay, well, um, let me give you a call in a little while when we get things settled up and, and you can meet the author who's also going to be helping with the production. So I didn't know who it was. And so I walk, I finally get into the office and I'm sitting across from Ray Bradbury and I'm just completely dumbfounded. And I, and I, and I told them, you know, uh, Mr. Bradbury, I got to tell you, you used to come to the, the dorms at UCLA and give uh, motivational speeches and talks and you would read poetry and we would watch one of your films. And that was the most incredible thing in the world. I never forgot anything you said. And he said, well, you think it sunk in kid? <laughs> and I go, well, I'm here <laughs> working with you. So maybe I've done something right. <laughs> so anyway, so uh, yeah, so I believe there was an actor who was also one of the co-producers, Larry Wilcox, who was one of the actors on a TV series called Chips that was pretty popular around that time. Larry was, according to the all of papers that I've seen in Bradbury's mm -hmm. archive, Larry was the producer that Ray most trusted in those early days. Yeah, because he was here. He was here. He could He could, like, have a daily meeting with him. Yeah. That's right, yeah. Sometime later, you did take the Bradbury theme and develop it into a, a longer suite, which you recorded with a full orchestra. So you must have been quite attached to it, to have given it that treatment. Absolutely. It meant a lot to me because I will find it one day. Uh, but there was a sheet of paper that Ray Bradbury typed on with his IBM Selectrix typewriter of what he wanted the music to say. So it, he, uh, at that meeting, I read his page of descriptives from the music and it was just wonderful. It was like, it was like, it was written, like it was kind of a comic book version of what someone describing music. You, you can, Ray, it's so funny. Ray never let go of the little boy in him. So you can read that enthusiasm. And I told him, I go, well, you know, one of my very first experiences, Ray, was going to a triple feature when I was a kid. And I think that struck me on a path to composing music for films and television and media. And that was a journey to the center of the earth, the mysterious island and the time machine. And he goes, perfect. That kid has to write this, this main title theme. That kid that was in the movie theater has to come back. And I go, he will, he absolutely will. So it meant a lot to me. You're absolutely right. And, you know, after the wall came down, there were uh, resources available to the media industry that were not available previous to that point. And so I'd say in, I knew about it in the mid 1990s, but in 2000, we had, uh, when the internet and bandwidth got more efficient, we were able to communicate with orchestras in Europe and it was very cost effective to hire out uh, an orchestra for an hour. And uh, one of the first things I did was orchestrate my Ray Bradbury theme for an orchestra. And we played it basically, basically note for note. I changed a little, little bit here and there. But to finally hear it and then play it to Ray Bradbury, you know, in, in the early 2000s was a wonderful experience. I was in communication with Ray. I could actually call his home. And if he wasn't doing anything, his wife would put me on the phone with him. And I said, 
I would say Ray, I would say Mr. Bradbury, but he didn't like that. Uh, I said, Ray, um, I, this John Mastari did the theme. Yeah, you did the theme to the Ray Bradbury theory. What can I do for you, kiddo? And I says, well, I, I went out and did a knucklehead thing. I, I took the, our main title theme for your TV show and I had it played by a full orchestra. He goes, I got to hear it. So I sent him a CD along with a, uh, a first draft of a suite, uh, an orchestral suite that I did based on that theme. Uh, it's about 20 minute piece of music. And I sent both of them to him. And he, uh, back then, you know, it was hard to um, email someone an audio file. So you sent them a CD, all right? This is like in the early, early 2000s. So I sent him a CD. However the long, long the mail takes to get to from where I was to where he was in Los Angeles and forever, how long it takes him for to open it and listen to it, that's when he called me back. He says, I just listened to it. I will pay you. Can I have three more CDs? And I said, Ray, I can make you 30 if you want. So I sent him a whole bunch of CDs, like 30 CDs. He, must, he says, I, I got to give this to all my friends. So that was just like, wow that that was such a wonderful i'm i was so happy that first of all he liked it and second of all he wanted to share it with his friends did you ever get any opportunities to do any more music for the series or was it just that one piece well i did the theme and i remember i did one episode and we had to do a lot of finagling because it was financed partially uh, there was an agreement with canada uh, they had to do a little bit of finagling for me to do one episode so otherwise I would have done several other episodes, which I would have just absolutely loved to do. So that's, that was my involvement with the series. I, I, I think there was more than 50 episodes, if not, but for, for administrative reasons, I was uh, only able to do one. And that was the Banshee, which if I'm not mistaken, got a, a before there were the Emmys, there was the Ace Awards for Cable. So I, I got to I got nominated for uh, best score for a television series, which was a great honor. And at the table was uh, none other than Maurice Jarre, who I was competing against. So that was that was a lot of fun. I got to meet him, and we had subsequently we had met at other events, and it's like it was really great to meet someone who is of that stature who when I was a little boy would watch his epic films and just be completely blown away now I'm talking to him as if he's a pal you know so that's all from uh, Ray Bradbury which other film composers did you like when you were growing up when I was growing up oh I had a mixed bag and I have a mixed bag even today there's no one single person I can say that I always listen to their music only. It's quite a variety uh, of music. I used to like, well, it seems like a cop-out to say just John Williams, but when John Williams was Johnny Williams and he was doing Lost in Space, I used to, I had a little tiny um, reel-to-reel Phillips tape recorder with a little microphone that looked like a, it was this little, little round thing wasn't that it's, it was just for recording voice to record your notes for dictation but i used to uh put it up to the television to record lost in space anytime i heard a piece of music that i liked i'd flip it on record it and then the next day go at the piano and try to plink out what i heard because i just 
love the the textures and listening to it now having listened to thousands and thousands of hours worth of music and practically the full swath of the repertory and then some i can kind of see you know what he was doing and where he was developing his style you know just like everyone else we all steal from other composers and i started recognizing oh my goodness there's a little bit of delius there oh my goodness there's a little bit of uh, uh ray von williams oh my goodness there's there's a bit of uh prokofiev over there you know which is you know, totally acceptable you uh imitation is uh what, what they, there's a saying that uh, they say that great artists steal oh yeah <laughs> they also say imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Absolutely. I wouldn't say he steals, but he sure, he, you could see see where his influences were. So that was that. Uh, there was Jerry Goldsmith. The uh, I was totally fascinated with the Planet of the Apes score. And when I had seen Planet of the Apes, I was probably 10 years old. We went to a drive-in theater and it was coming out of this like god-awful metal box and even through that metal box, I, I had to hear that music. I had to get the, the soundtrack album. There was Isaac Hayes who had done Shaft. I wore all these records out listening to them because they all had an experience. They all had a different musical experience that resonated with me in some way. And I just felt I had to listen to it over and over. And basically my quest for composing music is to, is to make a musical experience for myself. It's not only there's an experience in the process of coming up with the music and it's gathering your themes and little chord sequences and things like that. That's an experience. Then putting it together and making it, making it into a form, formulating a piece of music, a composition, that's an experience. Then producing it is an experience. And then listening to it back is an experience. Then sharing that experience with others and having it mean something to them is another experience. So I, I always felt that music is a, it's created a mood. It's put me in a mood that's wonderful to recreate. And when I would listen to those movies, uh, like, like I said, Marie Jarre, when I saw uh, Dr. Zhivago, when I saw uh, Lawrence of Arabia, I mean, there, there was just like, there's just big, bigger than life experiences that just captivate you. That's what I wanted to, you couldn't tear me away from it. Uh, wild horses couldn't tear me away from it. So I've, been in that pursuit ever since then. When you're composing, do you compose at the keyboard or are you using a computer, a piano? How do you do it? That's a very, very good question. That has developed greatly over the years. I like to use a pencil, something I can tactile. And sometimes I jot down ideas and I tinker at the piano. And then when I go to the computer, I put this, I input this, I perform it into the computer and I have another level of editing and structure. I, I find myself when I'm at the piano and I'm writing and I'm going to erase something, I go, oh, wait a minute, I should just strike through that because you never know. I may need to come back to that because in the computer I can undo. I can also on a track of music, when I play into a piano, the information of how what note I struck, how long I held it down for it, at what intensity I hit it with, all that's recorded, all that's preserved. So if I want to do a different one, I just merely go to another track or, or go to another section and I never lose anything. And I find myself, if I'm at the piano, because I like composing at the piano and writing on a piece of paper, there's something about that. It's tactile and it's organic. 
But I find myself now looking for a command, command S, but it's not on the piano. <laughs> so I'm very hesitant to like erase, literally erase something unless it's blatantly wrong. I'll do a strike through and go to another line. When I was studying music, I would see uh, manuscripts of composers and you saw a lot, a lot of strike throughs because I think they didn't want to erase it either. <laughs> I'd never really thought about that in relation to music. I look at a lot of um, manuscripts from authors, particularly from Bradbury, obviously, um, and I'm always fascinated by early drafts where you can see the typewritten version and then you can see the hand annotations in between the lines. But I've never really right. thought about that in relation to music. It must be the right. very same thing. Growing up, were you, were you much of a reader? Did you read any Bradbury? Is this a good time to make some revelations? I guess so. Uh, when I was in kindergarten, before I was like competent at reading, my kindergarten teacher read us all summer in a day. And she read it so beautifully. And it was like an illustration on how to be kind to people. Because in that short story, a very sad story about how people can be cruel to one another. When I was competent uh, in reading, uh, it's one of the stories that I read uh, I had to go to the library to find it because we didn't have the collection of Ray Bradbury's works at home. And I really didn't know it was Ray Bradbury. I had to describe it to the librarian because there's a short story. It's written by someone. It takes place on Venus and it rains all the time. And then one day it doesn't rain. And this girl, the kids want to go out and play. And she goes, okay, hold on a second. And she gets the book. And I read it from start to finish. But the, And then after that, I sing the body electric so those were the very first uh, Ray Bradbury uh, stories I, I read. I also read in high school, Fahrenheit 451, and I think that's about it. That was the, the bigger novels. And then a friend of mine, he always had this paperback book in the back of his, in his back pocket, and it was The Illustrated Man. So I read The Illustrated Man, loved that story. Uh, I appreciate the movie. And I know I know I sound like one of those book snobs, but the book is awesome. <laughs> I mean, you can only do so much in a movie, but uh, and I appreciated it. But the book is the book is absolutely awesome. That film drives me mad. There there are moments where you think, yes, this is it, this is Bradbury, and then every now and again, it just goes completely screwy. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> You've talked a little bit about your your compositional methods and so on. Yes. What's it like to be a, a working composer in Hollywood nowadays? Have things changed an awful lot? Well, just like in any industry, innovation drives great change. So when I was learning to compose music to visual media, I was taught by people who were still using equipment and standards of equipment that dated back to the 1930s and 40s, where you had to kind of be sort of proficient in working a moviola, which in my opinion was a combination between a lawnmower and a projector. <laughs> and how you can be in a room with that thing all day and not go crazy is beyond me. And I studied with composers that would have to rent a moviola, have it by the piano, and run it, look at the picture, and kind of tinker at the piano and figure out the timings and what have you. And I thought, boy, this is going to get better. 
I know at some point it's going to get better. And it used to be a big deal when a filmmaker can give you a, a VHS tape of whatever you're going to be working on. So it's like, wow, now I have a, t a tiny tape machine. By the way, I never rented a Moviola to work with. I think I was at that five years into that breaking point where you didn't have to have a Moviola. A lot of composers worked off of what were called cue sheets, where the music editor would take the scene that was agreed that was going to have music, and they basically did a an accounting of every second and every minute of what's going on. And you kind of, after seeing the film, you, you get the image, you have the timings and you make little notes and then you write a piece of music and your music is going to go along with whatever action was described. So then there was, I'd say in the early eighties, you had this technology developed called MIDI, Musical Instrument Digital Interface, where you can have a, play a synthesizer or a keyboard or a MIDI controller and play music into a sequencer that will record the, the activity of your performance. Now that that activity is recorded, it's kind of like the same principle as a piano roll, if you can imagine. It's like a digital piano roll where now you can change the tempo and you could have that data of your performance play different instruments. Of course, these would be synthesizers and early, early samples. So I was just absolutely fascinated with it. It took a while for me to get an actual computer because an Apple computer was prohibitively expensive for me. So I had what were called hardware-based sequencers, little boxes that were a few hundred dollars at the time that, were, that got me through until I could afford an actual Macintosh computer. And by that time it was like, wow, they had really developed where you have a choice in, in what's called a digital audio workstation to work numerically in any way, shape or form, numerically or graphically regarding music. And it also has a manuscript feature. So I can write my music in manuscript form, you know, like the staff, the grand staff, just like if I was writing on paper, except I can sit there and click the notes where I wanted them to go. And that was just wonderful. So it's always a changing, to this day, it's still a changing process. So you kind of keep up with what's new. And it's always fascinating to, to see the innovation that is developed. Every 18 months, things change greatly as far as computer performance, uh, what software programs are available. And you just have to keep up with it. It's just something that you have to do to me i'm fascinated by it because it expands uh, how i can express myself musically has there been a decline in the use of orchestras and, and full bands well i think what's happened with orchestras it's like it's really cut the herd down whereas the musicians that are available for working there's no such thing as a um, adequate musician you have to be very accomplished most of the people that have played my music in the past, oh, 10 years, are, you know, are people that they, they concertize throughout the world. They, they're, they're basically artists. So I think because the exacting precision of the computer has got things where you can make your music sound just so gorgeous and expressive and right on the money, th there's a few people that can play that well. Frank Zappa used to lament that he goes, gosh, I wish I can get musicians to play as good as my computer. 
Well, I think that with respect to accuracy, to expression, there's nothing like a, a, a wonderful musician that understands your music. Now that's a, that's a, a, a big leap. It's one thing to play the notes on the paper. It's one thing to have a collection of musicians that know the repertory backwards and forwards. They know where you're going you know, with your music and they know how to express it. That is where the magic happens, is the, the expression of the music. Because a really good musician will study composition, not to be a composer, but to understand the process of composing so that when they do perform a composition, they know what, they're bringing something to the table that's going to elevate the music beyond, you know, what was written on the paper. They're, they're going for a, a, an expression of emotion. And just going back to Bradbury for a moment, I think you took mm -hmm. part in the Ray Bradbury Reed event in 2016 in Los Angeles. What yes. do you remember of that event? I remember it was a lot of fun. And <laughs> I was sitting, uh, someone told me, the organizer says, oh, go over, sit over there. So I sat down and I did. I looked around me, I realized there's people who I didn't know they, who they were, but they were very familiar and I didn't realize they were actors in some very uh, prestigious television shows. One actor was in the, uh, I forgot his name, uh, please forgive me, but he was in the, I believe he was in the ice cream suit, which was a wonderful story directed by um, a director who did a lot of horror movies, but he was a really good director. Yeah, Stuart Gordon. Um, Stuart Gordon, yes. And I went to the screening of that. Uh, it was at the Disney Studios. And I got invited by Ray. And I didn't do any music for that, by the way. I would have loved to. But I was kind of uh, getting to know Stuart Gordon at the time. I never worked for Stuart Gordon either. And we uh, got together at a, uh, some restaurant after the screening. This was before we had iPhones or we had, you know, we carry a beautiful camera in our pocket. I wish I would have had that would have recorded some of Ray Bradbury's uh, recollections and musing. So we, he was like kind of holding court, Ray Bradbury for that. So anyways, so let's go back to the, uh, the reading we had. It was by the public library uh, here in Los Angeles, which Ray was a great benefactor uh, of. And uh, he provided um, great support through his influence in the community to get the uh, library to be what it is today. It's a beautiful library. So on the grounds of the library, we all had our like 20 minutes or half hour to, to read an excerpt of Ray Bradbury. And I chose the Laurel and Hardy love affair. Basically I read it, you know, picked certain aspects and the, um, the author who uh, hosted the event, I did not mention his name. That was, uh, you, I'm sure you know him, is Stephen Paul Leva. He, he was the one that, uh, that put together that, that wonderful reading. I spoke to Steve about a week ago. I interviewed him for this show. So. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. He okayed my editorial for the reading. And the only reason why I picked that, I guess because I had... Uh, went to a reading of Ray Bradbury at the uh, Hollywood Museum here that's by the Hollywood Bowl. And he read it and it was like poetry to me to hear him read his own work. But as he read the work, he read it from start to finish. He was crying through half of it. 
And I realized later that it was basically based on a personal experience of his. It's just a lovely story. And that's, and I hope I did it justice. I practiced for a week <laughs> reading it. And uh, I was told by people there that I did a good job I, and that I should do it more often. Whether I believe them or not is sure. a completely different story. <laughs> you could have a whole other career doing that. Well, you know, uh, listen, I, I'm not going to, uh, I, I won't dismiss that uh, concept. <laughs> Um, now I'm going to come to my desert island question, which I ask okay. everybody who who okay. I interview on the yeah. podcast. If yeah. you were to be marooned on a desert island, but you could have one piece of Bradbury with you, a book, uh -huh. a story, a film, uh -huh. what would you choose? Gosh. Yeah, why do you ask such hard questions? I will say, I think it would be a collection. I think it would be the October Country, which is not one single work. It's a collection of works. I have not read it. But if I could get my hands on Ray Bradbury's collection of poetry he was working on before he passed away, I would also like to read that on a desert island. And I would not use it to set a fire. I would actually keep it for reading to keep my I think sanity. a book of poetry would keep you going for a long time. He, he wrote yes. a lot of poetry. Yes. Some of it's great and some of it's not so great. But uh... Well, you know, I have been told that by other authors that they said that his wife was uh, very instrumental in helping him edit his work. It's interesting because I, I know that he admired Mark Twain and I had composed a uh, oratorio based on one of Mark Twain's poems titled The War Prayer. It was one of the last poems he had composed before he passed away. And uh, I approached Ray, oh gosh, I don't know, it was in the early 2000s. It's when, the, when I had sent him the orchestral version of the Ray Bradbury Theater. I figured I, got, I can get him on the phone. I have to ask him if he wouldn't mind being the narrator and read the, I'll come over there with a the microphone and everything. All he has to do is read the war prayer. And his response is, well, John, you know, I'm working on a book of poems. I'm doing a play. I'm working on a murder mystery. And uh, I'm pretty busy these days. So that was his very uh, poetic way of saying he wasn't interested. Have you been asked to take part in any events celebrating Bradbury's 100th year? No, I have not. I, I, I would be honoured and thrilled to be a part of it. I would love to be uh, involved in that in, in some way. Even if I was a guest, I, I would be most honoured. Well, just being on this podcast, you're part of the celebration. So that's... That's, that's, that's incredible. That's great. Where can people look for your work? Well, you can punch in my name on Amazon. You can punch John Masari on Amazon. It'll show you the, the music that's available there. Also on SoundCloud, which is kind of like the musical version of, uh, of YouTube, and YouTube itself. I would invite people to, uh, if they want to reach out to me on social media, and very happy to. I dedicate a certain part of the week to review all the um, communications from social media, and I make sure that everyone gets a response. I'm always creating music. I have, uh, for my Killer Clowns, we're planning when things go back to normal, we're planning some w very, very interesting and exciting musical events. 
in that realm. If any of your listeners are interested in the the suite for orchestra that I did based on the Ray Bradbury theater, you can buy, uh, there's an album I did called Singularity that has, in addition to the Ray Bradbury music, there's other music of, of orchestral, pure orchestral, all with orchestra that I would like to share with everyone. It's also, if you have an echo, like an Amazon echo, and you can ask Alexa to play music by John Masari. And she will play you probably about an hour and a half worth of my music <laughs> till your ears fall off. Uh, and in that collection of music is the full Ray Bradbury suite. It's called the first suite for orchestra. The Ray Bradbury is the title of the piece. I meant to say killer clowns from outer space. That's crazy yes. that that film is still so popular. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, it's thanks to the fans that love that movie and the, the complete insanity and brilliance and imagination, imaginativeness of that movie. It's kept it going all these years. I ha- must say I met some wonderful people because of that movie. And, and honestly, I didn't really discover the fan base until about five or six years ago. I was really not aware. I hadn't been involved in the horror sci-fi community from like, there's conventions all over the world. And I was invited to one. Oh, in, uh, I think it was 2015. Yes, 2015. I was invited to the 25th anniversary. I met people who were more familiar with my music than I was. And such wonderful people, you know. And so I I realized, you know, I have a duty to give back to these fans that appreciation. So that's when I did that uh, in 2018 at the 30th anniversary, I did a live to film concert here in Hollywood. That was just such a spectacular experience, not just for me, but for the people there. It was literally like a circus. People came dressed in, in costume. And there, were, there was a, a, a fellow who um, proposed to his, his fiance there and uh i didn't realize so many people so many people have killer clown tattoos (laughs) so it was it was quite a a wonderful it was like a big family event it was like a giant family reunion Uh, the cast members were there they did a performance of one of the scenes uh before the concert the the band uh, the punk band that play still plays this day they 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 tour throughout the world uh the dickies uh they're from the um generation of the ramones and they are still going strong. They performed their theme song for everyone with an orchestra. It was just wonderful experience. Absolutely wonderful. Yeah, and you must have had no idea back in those days that it would survive this long. No, all I wanted to do was do a really good job. Back then, you know, Tim Burton's, there was a movie that Tim Burton called Beetlejuice. And I thought, oh, this is really interesting. This is like this genre of crazy sci-fi horror comedy uh how wonderful it is and i just wanted it to be a successful film i just wanted it to be i just wanted people to love it and it had its little you know slightly it slightly missed its initial time in the sun uh because they only made a certain number of prints and this is of course before streaming right and so all the nice reviews that came out about it you know, people that people read, and now they want to go see the movie, the movie had moved to a different city. So uh, I think it was in Los Angeles for just a week and a half. 
by the time the, the reviews got in and the reviewers from the LA Times and the LA Weekly got to see it, which are the two papers that people used to read reviews for, by the time they had seen it, reviewed it, it was published on the stands, people read it, the movie was long gone. <laughs> so, so it took a while. It was thanks to cable that people rediscovered it and, and video rentals because those two reviews were featured in the, in, on the video boxes. And so it's taken a while, but we have this massive fan base throughout the world that we're very uh, grateful for. Oh, that's fantastic. Thank you, John, for joining me today. Thank you, Phil. It's been an honor. Thank you very much. My thanks to John Masari for joining me today. I'll put links to John's SoundCloud and YouTube channels on my website, which is bradburymedia.co.uk. And please join me next week for another episode of Bradbury 100. Bradbury 100 is presented and produced by Phil Nichols in collaboration with the Centre for Ray Bradbury Studies. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. Please subscribe to the podcast using your podcast app. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, SoundCloud and all good podcast places. And you can find us on Facebook too. For more information, head to bradburymedia.co.uk. Thank you.